We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, um, continuing in our series here, the whole book of Ephesians, the walking dead. Now Paul gets to the meat of the Christian life. If we're no longer the walking dead, his life is our walk supposed to look like. He begins that. Give um, us tonight here in chapter 4. So if you would, read the first uh, 16 verses with me. I have a prisoner from the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led others to captives and gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, and he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schools. Rather speaking the truth in love or grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. It's God's word. So, this is uh, the, the turning point of Ephesians. I told you all that you can basically divide the, uh, Ephesians in two uh, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. It's the second half of the book. The first three chapters, there was only one verb in the imperative. There's only one word, one time in the first three chapters where Paul said that we were supposed to do something, and it was the word remember. So it wasn't even really something to do, something to, to, to remember. Um, but now, as if you stick with us for the next four or five weeks that we have left in the semester, you will see that Paul over and over and over and over again is now going to tell us what to do. Okay? So you get chapters one through three, if you remember, or if you weren't here, just refresh. Um, chapters 1 through 3, Paul is just telling us about something that God is doing. He's telling us about this cosmic plan that God is unfolding from the, uh, from the God trying to reconcile all things to himself. Truth after truth, Paul gives us about how God has accomplished just that in the person of Jesus, and how, because of Jesus, God is now accomplishing that in us, in his people. So think about it. You think about how, why Paul um, structured the letter, uh, the Ephesians this way. This is what he's doing. 
What he's been doing is lay out the basic formula of Christianity. It's the basic formula of the gospel. <coughs> that your being comes before your doing. Paul spends the first three chapters telling you about what God has done in Jesus on your behalf. Because if you do not understand that, then you cannot even begin to think about that being and for so many of you, you've been so burned out of the church and with the Bible and with Christianity because your whole life you've been told completely opposite. Paul lays out straight first. Your being comes before your duty. So on the foundation of your being, who you are to God in Christ, the first three chapters, now Paul begins to say, because of that, this is how you then live. Meaning, because of who you are in Christ, this is not how you live in Christ. That's what he's going to be laying out for the rest of the book. So, I wonder if you were about to lay out kind of how the Christian life is to do that. What would be first on your list? Would you have guessed that Paul's first thing he would say is unity? First thing he goes. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, We'll look at uh, three parts, the foundation of unity, the diversity of unity, and the goal of unity. So the first thing here is the foundation of unity. You see that in the first six verses, okay? At the beginning of the semester, if you recall, I suggested to you that our generation, your generation, I feel like I'm going to have to say that. Our generation has been shackled by a great fallacy. Uh, and that fallacy is believing the lie that you are what you do. This is not just the world, this is not just the church, but it's both of together and maybe in our American setting. You are what you do. Your whole life has been defined for you about what you have or have not done. And if you want to make up for what you fall short of, you need to do more, um, and just more and more and more, do more, do this, do that. Change, if you want to change you, you got to do this, you got to stop doing that. We believe the lie wholesale that we are what we do. And I think what it's led us to is some glaring contradictions. One of that, I'll mark out for you at the beginning of the semester, is that, um, you know, American students have steadily have been falling in test scores like in science and math and, and important stuff, but they consistently rank number one um, in self-esteem, right? Remember I said this. What that means is that we're doing first on our test, we feel that I'm not doing on those tests. Uh, and then at the same time, studies are telling us that college freshmen are some of the most stressed and most anxious um, college freshmen that I've ever Okay, so there's some kind of disconnect between um, those studies, right? Well, I came across another study this week, not that you care, but I'm going to tell you. Um, it was in the Atlantic, and this is uh, what the title of it was. Millennials, that would be few. Millennials are deeply confused about the politics, finances, and culture. Okay, the way that all basically presents this is that um, another study that we're not millennials and what we get is what we're expecting some glaring contradictions. And here's some of the contradictions that the study found, okay? Your generation is being hammered by the bad economy. The unemployment rate in your age range, people getting loud in college is around 13, 14%. Okay? National unemployment is like 7 right? Um, so you're getting hammered by the bad economy, but your generation is the most optimistic generation about your finances. Okay? Your generation has a record number of single parents. But your generation um, has the most negative view of single parents. 
Okay? Your generation is the least likely to identify as a Democrat or Republican, but your generation has the highest approval rate of Congress. That is not something <laughs> Your generation is much more liberal than gay marriage, pawn, and immigration. I don't even know if that. But your generation is no more liberal on gun control and abortion. Still kind of concerned with them these days. Millennials voted overwhelmingly for Obama, and they want universal care health care, but millennials have the highest negative view of Obamacare. This is the most interesting one. This is the most interesting one. You are the most technologically connected generation in history, but you are also the least trusted. You're the most technologically connected generation in history. You are the least trusted. And this is how the author put it. I thought this was great. In some ways, in that. Here's the difference. He says, here's a generation that trusts its peers enough to meet random strangers in bars on Tinder, Ride in cars with strangers on Uber and Lyft, visit strangers' apartments on Craigslist, sleep on their beds through Airbnb, and you're also the least likely to say most people can be trusted. He points it out as a glaring contradiction. Okay, that's how the author presents the study. That your generation is a glaring contradiction. Take that out of your mind. Maybe your generation is just diverse, maybe your generation is just in process, I don't know. Here's what I would suggest. When I think it's a sign of our culture at large, not just for generation, but all of us, it's a sign of a generation of a culture without a foundation. It's a sign of a culture that doesn't know what to think and will think anything if it makes you feel good. It's a sign of a culture without a foundation, back and forth, all over the map. You see, Paul here, he starts as he kind of transitions into the same act of he starts about the Christian life and he starts with unity. And then he begins that discourse on unity with its foundation. Before he talks about why unity, he talks about its foundation. Verse 1, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's already back to the being. No sooner has he begun the second half of his letter, he's already back to the being. We're all in a manner uh, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is the calling to which you have been called? Well, who called you? Well, in the first two chapters, he tells us God called us. God said this, right? Okay, what did he call you with? He called you with the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus has done, that Jesus lived the perfect life for you, and Jesus died to death and you died. That's what he called you with. Why and how did he call you? If you remember chapter 2, grace. Why does he love me? Because he loves me. Because of his own initiative. That's why and how he calls. That is the foundation of how you are supposed to live. And it's the foundation of this thing Paul starts talking about in unity. Unity, okay? The person Paul points to, when he looks back at the foundation, he says, that should immediately lead us to unity. And he's talking about us together. He's talking mainly first about those who have the gospel, those who have been called, those who have been saved. Unity should mark us, is what he said. Okay? Remember what he said. He said, We were dead, but now we're alive. We were far off, but now we've been brought near. If you remember, he went so far as to say we are by nature, children of wrath, but now in Christ we're all sons of God. Okay? So the sum, I would say, of the first chapter of what Paul's been telling us, the sum of the gospel there is that 
in Jesus, we are restored to a right relationship with God. That was kind of the sum of the first three chapters of what, how Paul saying God's been working in us individually and collectively as a people. That we were dead to God, we were far off from God, but now we have been brought into a right relationship. That which separated us from has been dealt with. Now we have a right relationship with Him in Jesus. He puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Then he goes on in the next sentence to say, And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have been reconciled to God, and in that, in that very reconciliation, we've been given also the ministry of reconciliation. So maybe Paul said in the previous and here, the direct result of what Jesus has done for your relationship with God directly overflows in your relationship with other people. We've been there before. He connects the dots in the same way there in verse 3. He says that we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to, we should be, because of what God has done for us in Jesus, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So because of what Jesus has done for us, we're eager to live in right relationships. Because we've been given right relationship, we're to be about right relationships. That's the connection for all of you want to start the Christian life, what am I supposed to do? It starts with living rightly with the people around you. That's what Paul said. Okay? So if you're going to call yourself a Christian, Paul is saying that you be about the business of getting along with other people. And he says, eager to maintain. Okay, so eager to maintain. So it's not something to create, it's something that exists if we're in Jesus, and it's something we're supposed to. Pursue. We're supposed to participate in it. We're supposed to pursue it. And it also hits the fact that we lost. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that we lose it a lot, right? We're supposed to maintain something that is true through Jesus. But something that can be easily messed up. And some of you are saying to yourself, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because I grew up in a church that maybe preached something like this with a Or all I see in Christians is people that fight just as much as other people do. Right? But notice what Paul said. Paul's not saying unity for unity's sake. He's saying that we don't get we don't just get unity because we need it. There's a substance there that creates it, founded upon something. And the way we go about it, look at verse uh, verse two here. The way we go about it is with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Humility. The little word there is lowliness of mind. Okay, it was not a compliment. The word actually meant the crouching submissiveness of a slave. Okay, who wants that? Like, nobody wants to explain that. Um, but in the Christian spiritual sense, it's the recognition that all I have has been given to me. It's living in that recognition. It's living that, saying that we have nothing other than what we receive. Because that's exactly what the gospel tells us. We know how important this is because we know. We hate people that make us feel like we Those are the people we stay away from. We flock to the people that make us feel valuable. Right? When you think about humility, Jesus is the one that showed it to us. He was the one that lowered himself. He didn't have to, but he did. So that we would be exalted. Gentleness. Okay, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is actually something of a tangible strength. 
or use his strength um, uh, mildly. It's, uh, it's, it, nowhere is gentleness shining through uh, more than when we say something like a gentle giant. Somebody that looks like they should just be knocking things over all the time, but like maybe they um, are soft. I don't know. I'm thinking like, you, like big football players that's like little kids. kids. We love a gentle giant, right? Um, when we think about, again, Jesus, the one in whom, by whom, and through whom, and for whom are all things, actually bottles that up and becomes a person and lives on earth in human body and gets hungry and gets tired. Patience. Patience, I think this is a weird translation, but it literally means long soul. Long soul. It's one who takes the long view. It's one who takes the big picture. Patience, this is a big one for Carrie and I, um, Carrie and Amy. Um, with our children, right? Um, it's one who sees the big picture. The best illustration for me is this. We went to St. Louis this past week, about eight, uh, nine of us, uh, on a mission trip. This church that has been in the inner city for 20 years. Um, and a guy that I've been there before, the guy that led my group at the time before, he has to say that no matter what comes up, he always says the same thing more mercy. So, like, maybe in the morning we're supposed to go out on our job projects and everything doesn't line up the way it's supposed to, and we're supposed to figure out more details, and he says more mercy. Or somebody forgot their lunch, and so we got to scramble and figure out where their lunch is, and he says more mercy. And that seems trivial there, but then that one time happened, we were doing backyard bottle club uh, in, this, in this neighborhood. And next door to the house we were doing was this huge, angry, chained up dog. Okay, and we got all these children just running around crazy, and I'm just scared to death that any of those children is going to wander in that backyard. And sure enough, I had my back turned for a minute, and all of a sudden, the dog went quiet, and I heard a piercing scream of the little child. And I ran and I scooped up this boy who had been bitten in the backside. Um, it broke my heart, and he was okay. He had my loss on him, but he was okay. Um, and I remember. So the, the, the church that he was going to go next door and ask the owner, you know, if the dog had its chops, right? And this man who owned the dog had a history of uh, militant, uh, being a militant uh, Muslim, I guess. Um, and so he knew what we were doing. We knew it was going to be a heavy conversation. You know, my blood's boiling, my eyes are stuck out, and I'm thinking, what is going to happen in this thing? In that moment, Andrew, God's name, what does he say? Mourners. And he says it at the exact same time that he used it the rest of the week. It me away. Taking the long view, taking the big picture, how do I do that? Because we remember how God is taking the long view of us. And he is having to be patient with us in order to us, in order to bring, bring us to himself. All three of those have to do with how we deal with one another. And in Christ, what Christ has done for us and in us and through us is what leads us to. Um, you notice Paul lists um, He says that they all come to us in Christ because we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one of all. Those are seven ones. Numbers are significant in the Bible. Seven is the number of divine completion. What Paul is saying is this is divine completion of God in our lives as he brings us together as one. So part, 
and parcel of the completion that God is working in us is how you and I relate to That's where it starts, okay? That the heart of what it is to be a Christian is our relationships. That's what it's going to continue to unfold in. The next one, small and small, promise. The next one here is the diversity of unity. It's the most intriguing part of this unity is that Paul says it's brought about by diversity. It's not that we all just fall in line. The unity that we have in Christ is not that we all just fall in line. It's like, I love Jesus. And we're all second hands. Sing to my heart. It's the real unity actually is born out of this diversity of gifts that Jesus gives us. And how do we understand it? Well, Paul quotes here, if that looks familiar, our call of worship, Psalm 68, 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captains in your train, and receiving gifts among men. Paul says that, Paul quotes that and says that he gave gifts to men. Okay? Psalm 68, if you go back and read it, it's about God as a mighty warrior who goes out and conquers all his enemies. Um, and the basis of the psalm is actually a common practice when a king would go out and win a big battle and win a big war. He would come back and there would be a big parade, right? This huge celebration of a king, a leader, has gone out and won victory on behalf. And people would line the streets and they would throw gifts and stuff as he as he would come in his victory train and lead maybe prisoners of war or whatever and the schools of war. And as he got to the center of the city, then he would proceed to pass out the schools of war, to distribute them among his people. Paul makes that picture and says it applies to Jesus. And he's already displayed in chapter 1 that Jesus is the one who's defeated all of our enemies. And Jesus is the one who's taken his seat at God's right hand. So when was it that Jesus ascended and gave gifts? It's interesting to note that Psalm 68 was used in commemoration of the Jewish Pentecost. Something happened at Pentecost one year. In Acts chapter 2, when Jesus gave the gift of his Holy Spirit. Right? Pentecost, when he poured out his spirit. And you notice, look at the gifts. Look at the gifts there in verse 11. Um, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. What are all of those have in common? Spoken word. All of them. They're all word gifts. But more than that, they're all service gifts. What do I mean there? They're all to be used not in the building up of oneself, but in the building up of other people. Okay? This is so big on the college campus because everything you're involved in is about competition. Everything about college is measuring up and making sure you measure up and making sure in most cases that you measure up more than other people, right? Um, for the good, you know, it's buying the thing you are what you do. It's not supposed to be the case it's not supposed to be the case in the midst of God's people. It's our gifts are actually supposed to be used in the building of others. And you're thinking to yourself, look at this and say, well, I'm not any of those. But here's the thing. Do you have a Bible? And if you're a Christian, do you have the Spirit? But guess what? You have a word. That works. And how do all of these use their gifts? All of these seven names here use their gifts by speaking into the lives of other people. In other words, it's not just for you. 
In other words, you've got to get out of your own head. In other words, you need other people. And you need to be in the lives of other people. And other people need to be in your lives. That's why you should dare sign up for them. It's actually a sign to the world that Christ is bringing in the fact that He has gifted all of us to speak into each other's lives. Second Corinthians 5 says that we've been reconciled to God and in turn we've given uh, the ministry of reconciliation. And then the next verse it says, We are all ambassadors of Christ. As so you think about Jesus as the Word in the flesh, what does He what does He bring to us? God. And takes us to God. And then us as ambassadors to Christ, what do we do? Bring others to Christ. As you speak into each other's lives, you're supposed to be bringing each other to Jesus. And Paul says we're going to be built up. And that's what I want to end with here. The goal of unity. Look at these last three verses, or four verses, 13 through 16. What is the end game? The end game is not, Paul's not just saying, hey, can we all get along? Paul says some harsh things about some people in some of those numbers, right? Um, there is a specific foundation of this community. There's a diversity of gifts building onto one common goal, which is, when he says there in 13, 15, equipping and building us up to maturity. Look at verse 13. He leads us to attain unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and maturity unto the fullness of Jesus. So he says we're going to believe the same thing, we're going to know Jesus, and we're going to become more like him. That's what's going to happen. In other words, Paul's saying the goal here is not education. The goal is not this list of things you need to know. The goal is transformation. That you're actually new creation in Christ Jesus. We'll see that next week. But what is this maturity? I just want to break this down for you in two ways. First thing he says there about maturity in verse 14, is that we no longer be children. That we would grow up, is what he says. Okay? And he uses, he says that we would not be tossed to and fro. That's a seasickness now. Anybody ever been seasick? If you're unsure, you've never been seasick. If you've been since seasick, you know it, right? It's terrible. It's like the worst feeling ever. Your whole equilibrium, like your whole existence, it's thrown off balance when you're seasick. Even when you get close to land and you see land, like it does nothing for you because it's like in your inner ear. I don't know what that means, but you're off balance. Um, and sometimes, like, like when you get to land, it doesn't necessarily help. It's a disorientation that comes from the inside, it is the worst thing ever, right? I got seasick when I was six years old and I drank red Gatorade all before it. To this day, I will not touch red Gatorade. <laughs> How does this manifest itself in our lives? Being tossed to and fro. I think it manifests itself in our generation in at least two ways. These are two that I think of. For some of you, you're a drilling What I mean by that is you get bored really easily, and as soon as you get bored, you're ready to move to the next day. Meaning that you cannot stand to be a part of something that feels old or dead. You're constantly just moving from one thing to the next, and you're constantly looking for that next big thing that will move you, right? To make you feel it. But others of you, 
Sometimes you find yourself, you do this thing, constant doubt. And doubt is not, you will never hear me say doubt is a kind of thing. That's one thing I actually have to to. It's been a long way that we've grown up. But I mean, like a constant skepticism. Like you feel like it's not healthy unless you bring doubt into it. Um, you doubt what you hear, you doubt what others say, you doubt yourself, you don't know any other way. For some reason, you've never found what feels exactly right. And the problem is that you're looking for something that feels exactly right. Hence, you're never going to find And some of you are either constantly skeptical, searching for it, or else you're throwing your hands up to the walls of the school. I think the root problem for both of those is the same. Is that you've grown up your whole life being told that you are supposed to feel about a certain way. And I specifically mean for those of you who grew up in church. That you've been told something about Jesus and the gospel and the Bible, and what you've been told is that because you know those things, you are supposed to feel a certain way. And if you don't feel a certain way, then that means you don't get it. And if you don't get it, you better go out and find it for us. There is this really interesting article. I'm hesitating to bring it up because it's about something totally different. The title of it was the Confessions of an Ex-Evangelical Pro-Same-Sex Marriage Millennial. Um, and it talks about how the issues of same-sex marriage are in the walking away from the faith. And I'm not going to be near that time. But I want you to, I just took this quote from it. I want you to hear this. This is what this person said about how he was driven away from the he says, when you have a feelings-based salvation in a faith in which doubt is a sign of spiritual failure, then the young members of these churches lack the space to wrestle with a tough issue like this. You see, same-sex marriage advocates are employing the motive arguments in order to win, but you have to realize that a lot of the Christians that are being argued against have traded in nothing but emotion for the last 30 years. Salvation to them is a weeping, sinner's prayer only, emotional roller coaster, and the emoting never stops. When the emotions are the foundation on which you build your faith, what happens when your emotions don't line up with the teachings of the church? What happens when you don't feel right about what you say you or what you think you the thing is, for so many of you, you are fueling your relationship with God by how you feel. And it is a roller coaster you cannot wait to get off And as a result, you have no idea which way it's up. And what Paul is saying is that is a sign of spiritual maturity. That's something that we're actually supposed to be called out of. How do we get God out of it? It's the last thing he says to he says, rather, in verse 15, we should be speaking the truth in love. So truth in love is the balance of the mature person. You know, some of us are true people. Um, you're the kind of person that likes to say, you know, you're true person. You know, you're a terrible person. I just thought you should know. Um, and you think you've done some money in favor. I do know. Um, that's what you think. Others of you are love people. Right? You just can't all along. Um, we put our, I'm a lot like this in a lot of ways. We just put our heads in the sand and just keep telling ourselves it's all going to be okay. By the way, that is not me. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. 
in every way into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When working properly makes the body grow so it builds itself up in That word equipped is actually in Greek used in the medical profession for the mending of broken bones. Matthew 4 21 is used, the same word is used to describe a fisherman mending their nets. So, in other words, what Jesus is doing in making us one and in calling us and commanding us to pursue that promise is healing. What it is when we're brought together, when we pursue unity, when we experience unity, when we actually be open with one another and what's wrong with ourselves and with each other, now Jesus has healed that. That actually becomes a healing balm to our soul. Something that heals us. And Paul says it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in the Is that not an amazing picture that when we relate to one another, another rightly, in other words, when we relate to one another as Jesus related to us, humbling himself, being gentle, being patient, we actually build each other. We all want to be in a group of people that Paul says that if we get the gospel, that is the number one thing we are going to be about. The thing is, is that there's substance there. It's not just a feeling. So the question is, are you at least willing to look into it? It's an invitation. Holy Father, we, if we're honest, we can admit that so often our lives are so structured. There seems to be nothing but broccoli and vision and heartache. Father, because of what Jesus has done for us and reconciled us to you, you said that that actually gives us something to stand on with each other. When we find our footing, and your love toward us in Jesus. And how you dealt with what was foul and ugly of us. That we might be with you. That in dealing with that, we can actually be honest with one another. We can actually be humble. We can actually be gentle. We can actually be patient. We want to be that, but we need your help. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.